Good morning. Quick show of hands. Who else here has been at one of those team building seminars for work? Or maybe it was one of those uh, life team conversations where the leader did a series of icebreaker questions that are often pretty silly. Anybody else? Any, yeah. I'm talking like if you had a cartoon character you can organize a sit-down dinner with, who would it be and why? Or maybe the question was, if your life was a movie, which actor or actress would play your, your role? Those kinds of questions, right? Anybody? Anybody? Right? Right? Bueller? Bueller? If you're under 30, you'll have to ask your mom about that later, what that movie means. <laughs> I'm talking about icebreakers, right? These questions that are designed often in a group setting as a way to break the ice. Now, that's a really unique phrase, isn't it? Break the ice. Like, where did that come from? It turns out it goes back as far as Shakespeare, and it has morphed in its meaning ever since. Most notably, inspiring the name behind these steam-powered ships. They were used to navigate the icy, cold Arctic waters and get this, break the ice. It would make it possible for travelers to navigate and explore these realms. And do you have any guess what these ships were nicknamed? Icebreakers. Really clever, right? <laughs> these ships were designed to break the ice because they were to clear a path and, and in the same way make it possible for other ships behind them to follow along. Their success was dependent on these icebreakers doing their job. And that's the brilliance of a good icebreaker question because it can similarly take a conversation from zero to 60, from small talk to this deep, rich conversation about things that matter. And I have found it's the very same thing when it comes to talking with people about Jesus. I loved Pastor Jeff's statement from last week. He shared about why we exist as a church. Here's what he said. We believe that God loves all people. And not only has he loved us and brought us into his family, but he has also empowered us to communicate this truth of his love to everyone. That is what we are about. And I couldn't agree more. And yet, have you ever found it difficult to actually go about doing so? To, to communicate the truth of this love of God, to, to make the connection between a conversation today about laundry and somehow connect it to the things of eternity. Because it's not like there's not a lot on the line, right? And we're talking about forever and ever and ever here. I'm reminded of the fiery hot words from the 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He said this, if sinners will be condemned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unprayed for and unwarned. Do you hear his passion? Do you sense it for yourself? Does your heart 
ache as he watched friends and loved ones choose to live their lives apart from God, marching down a path that is sure toward destruction that is on the other side. Like, why then is it so hard for us at times to even begin a conversation with our friends? Why is it so difficult? I believe a large part of why is because we don't even know how to break the ice. So what a gift we have today, because the text before us is a master class. It is a case study on how to share the gospel by learning to break the ice. And we're going to discover this by looking at a pattern uh, by, from a master icebreaker named the Apostle Paul, which you could find in Acts chapter 17. Please turn there with me. Acts chapter 17. While you're turning there, I just want to say a quick welcome to everyone here. And also to those tuning in online and from one of our campuses, we're, we're grateful that you made time to choose to be with us as we dig into God's word today. But if you've ever wondered how to talk to your friends about Jesus, this message is for you. Acts chapter 17, starting now with verse 16, it reads, While Paul was waiting in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full, say this word with me, of idols. So Paul's in the city of Athens, Greece, and it says that while he's there, something's got him distressed. He finds that the city has been filled with idols, false worship to false gods. Now on the surface, this language of idolatry can feel a bit primitive and barbaric to us. Like it's something that, something foreign, something uh, people in far off lands or distant times used to do, but not us, of course, right? Like not us in 21st enlightened, uh, 21st century enlightened America, right? Can't, th there's no way it could be true about us, but I invite you to consider this chilling commentary by Pastor Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, each culture is dominated by its own set of idols, we may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by a, an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. That's chilling, isn't it? And it's pretty insightful. Paul walks into Athens. He's surrounded by idols. And the reality is, so are we. So what's our response? Are we blind to the idols that are around us? Or do we have eyes to see? So Paul's distressed, and perhaps many of us are too, and yet distress cannot be the end to itself. No, Paul's distress leads him to something deeper. Jump to verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. We're going to stop there for a moment. Paul has taken time to study the culture around him. He's walked the streets. He's visited all the religious houses of worship. 
And the first lesson we must learn from this master icebreaker on how to break the ice is this. I identify what's underneath. Identify what's underneath. See, what initially began as distress led to a deep discernment of the people's greatest need, their need for worship. That's what was underneath, hence all the idols. Like why else would they have made all these false gods except that they somehow knew deep at their core that they were made for worship. They just had the wrong God. If you and I are going to effectively break the ice, we need to know what the real conversation is about. What's under the surface of the surface level behaviors and beliefs and thoughts? A quick way to find out is to see what makes a person angry. I do not advise this, but when my wife and I first started dating, this is going to be good, I would run social experiments basically on my wife. Then my first girlfriend, so clearly I had a lot of experience here. I'd ask her contentious questions or I'd place her in uncomfortable situations to basically test how she'd respond. I just, now some call this self-sabotaging for a good reason. I did say not to do this. I don't advise this, right? But for me, I was like 18. I just wanted to figure out what made her tick. I wanted to understand why did she do what she did and why did she say what she'd say? And I somehow had a sense that if I tested her by making her angry, it would give me some clues because anger is uh, anger arises most often when something we love is violated in some way. If you want to know what makes a mama bear angry, if you want to know what makes a mama bear what she loves, you just mess with her cubs, right? It's the same thing. If you find out what makes someone angry, you discover what they actually love deep underneath. Back up to verse 18. You're going to see this in action. It tells us that while Paul's in town... He's talking to some of the people. A group of philosophers begin to debate with him. It seems to me Paul's taking a cue from my misguided dating tactics. <laughs> Why are these philosophers debating with Paul? It's because something they love is being violated. Their beliefs, maybe their, their thoughts. And what's underneath is beginning to surface in the form of debate. They're getting riled up. See, sometimes we're unable to communicate effectively with others because we're speaking to what's on the surface. We just keep dancing around with talking points. Well, this, no, this, no, this, no, this. But if you really want to be effective in communicating, we've got to get to the root. If someone is religious, what's likely underneath is a heart for worship. If someone is consumeristic, perhaps an insatiable desire for something to fill their hungry souls is at play. If, if someone is a people pleaser, it could be that what's underneath is a deep-seated need for approval, the only approval that can be found in Jesus Christ himself. What I'm saying is knowing these things allows us then to go deeper and to highlight uh, how Jesus alone can meet that specific need, but we've got to get to the root. And so when you find yourself distressed by others' choices or priorities or values or beliefs, try digging a little deeper. Seek to understand why they do what they do. Don't just assume, hey, I know what it is. No, 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 no. Let's be willing to stay curious long enough to find out 
To paraphrase the great apologist Francis Schaeffer, if you've only got one hour to preach the gospel to somebody, take the first 55 minutes and ask good questions and listen so that when you have the last final minutes, you have something meaningful to say. That's the first thing Paul did. Here's the second. C, connect the dots. Connect the dots to Jesus. Picking up again now with verse 23, Paul tells them, As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. So Paul's identified the deep-seated need, and now he's connecting the dots. He's like, you have this need for worship, so much so you have an altar to an unknown God just in case you missed one. Well, guess what? He's not an unknown God. In fact, he's the only God. And let me make him known to you now. That was the segue. And then Paul begins to describe this God in verse 24. Let's read a little bit more. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives life to everyone and breath and everything else. So Paul's like, this unknown God that you worship, let me make him known to you. He's the creator of all. We didn't make him, but he made us. And then he really hammers this in verse 29. Paul says, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Do you see what he's doing? He's taking the people's propensity to create for themselves an entire city of idols, to literally fashion from their own hands false gods, and he then flips it around and says, you guys think you can make your own God? Guess what? The true God, he made you. And then he gets there. The way he gets there is through verse 28. This is so incredible. Paul says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Can I tell you what is so fascinating to me? Paul, the apostle Paul, handpicked by Jesus Christ himself, never once quotes the Bible here. In this whole sermon, he never says, as Genesis 1-1 tells us or anything like that. But you do see some quotation marks here, right? He's quoting something, but it's not in the Bible. What's he quoting? He's quoting their poets. He's quoting their philosophers. That first one, for in him we live and move and have our being, that is nowhere found in the Bible. Instead, it was a line of well-known Greek poetry, and he is in Athens, Greece, right? And get this, that line was originally attributed hundreds of years beforehand to the Greek god, Zeus. What I'm saying is Paul is quoting a pagan worship lyric and then he redeems it and attributes it to God. That would be like opening the worship service with a Bruno Mars song. Or get some Taylor Swift going and then, hey, beeline to the gospel. Like, that's what's happening here. Why? Because Paul is speaking their language. 
He's connecting the dots about who God is, but he's doing it with words that they would know and understand. Same with the quote about we are his offspring. It's the very same thing. Another famous line from Greek poetry. And then Paul uses that as a segue in verse 29. He says, therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made of human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked, next verse, please. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by a man he has appointed. That's Jesus Christ. God has given proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. This all started with a walk around town for Paul, a connection from the unknown God to the known God, and now he's made a very clear call, repent and believe in Jesus. Now clearly Paul knows the word, right? No doubt about that. All the stuff he said in his sermon has clearly been formed by what he's understood from the scriptures. Knowing the word is good, but hear me clearly as I say this. It's not enough to just know our Bibles. It's not enough to just spout off Bible verses. Yes, we need to know the word. The word is good, but we also need to know their world. We need to know the word and know their world. It's both. It's not one or the other. Paul is able to connect the dots between their need for God and God himself because he knew both the word and their world. The most compelling evangelism is able to sit in the tension between knowing the word and knowing their world. What I'm saying is, quote their song lyrics. Reference real life, day-to-day realities. Show God's purposes and power through the ordinary and all the connections. Literally, here's what this means. You can scroll on Facebook and you can binge a show on Netflix and that is research. It is. You're learning the lingo enough that you can then make a beeline to the gospel. Nothing is wasted. Nothing has to be wasted. So I identify what's underneath See, connect the dots, and there's one more. But first, verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. They mocked him. But others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, Uh, a member of the Areopagus, uh, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So when it comes to sharing the gospel, Paul gives us one last lesson in breaking the ice, and it's this. E, expect varying responses. Expect varying responses. Because some may mock, but others will not and they will choose to follow Jesus. Obviously, Paul is a master icebreaker, but even Paul doesn't have a 100% closing record. That's okay. No one, not even God, expects a 100% conversion rate. 
We are called, though, to speak. So expect varying kinds of responses. I'll tell you, I've had more no's in life than yeses. That's for sure. And maybe you have too. And it can be hard to share something as personal as our faith and find ourselves rejected in the process. I have lost friendships as a result at times, not because I gave up on the relationships, but because others grew tired of what they, in their words, was me always making it about Jesus. When, when you make it a point to bring up Jesus into the conversation, it's true that sometimes you won't get a yes. But you know what expect varying responses also means? You won't always get a no either. You won't always get a no either. In fact, I want to encourage somebody this morning. Maybe you've been praying for your brother to follow Jesus for years now. Maybe you've been praying for your husband or your wife to see how good this God is that you've come to know. Maybe you've been praying for your kids or your friends or your coworkers or your neighbors, and it's like every time before it's been no, 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 no. Can I encourage you today? If the last 10 times all you heard was a no, then maybe, just maybe, this next time will be yes. Because we can expect varying kinds of responses. Even Paul got turned down, but did he let up? No, he kept going. He kept breaking the ice. He kept taking new territory because he knew that the same Holy Spirit that filled him and fueled him is the same Holy Spirit that rose Christ from the dead. There is power in the the name of Jesus. And in the same way that the Holy Spirit filled him and fueled him, I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit fills you and fuels you too. And the same God who loved them loves your child. He loves your daughter. He loves your son and your sister and your brother and your parents and your neighbor. He loves everybody in the whole world more than we could possibly love them. And he wants them to know him. God wants them to find him. And so he calls us to join him in the work by breaking the ice to just keep chipping away because we may not be the ones who get that yes, but somebody else may simply because we were the icebreakers who forged away through that ice so that God might, through one of his other kids, break through that rock-hard, icy heart and turn it into a heart of flesh that beats with love and life once more. A number of years ago, back when I lived in New Jersey, I used to serve uh, at our church's high school ministry. And a guy in our youth group uh, began dating somebody who wasn't a Christian. And yet I could tell there was like a sense in her heart, there was kind of an openness toward Jesus. And so over the course of several months, she and I had deeper and deeper conversations until one day I'm so thankful to share with you that she gave her life to Jesus and became a follower of Jesus. We can applaud that, yeah. Just a side note, I love response. And so anytime, just even if you say boo, it's a response. I can feed off of that. Laughter is good too. I like laughter. 
But this series of conversations, here's what's so cool. It was years in the making because her sister and I went to high school together. We were separated by a couple grade levels, but we shared one class in all of our years, one class, and it was choir. And we only ended up sharing that class because the year before, I tore my ACL playing soccer, and I decided if I couldn't make it in life as a professional soccer player, then I might as well pick up another hobby like music. (laughs) Senior year of high school, that's what happened. All these pieces, all these ordinary, seemingly coincidental moments in the hands of a God who is not made by human hands, they were set in motion to become far more than ordinary. Like Pastor Jeff said last Sunday, God is doing extraordinary things in our world and he invites us to join him. Because sometimes people will say no, but other times they'll say yes. So now what? Right, knowing all of this, how do we actually apply this and put it into action? Well, back in school, we learned the five W's. You guys remember this? Who, what, where, when, why. Yeah, and there's like how and some other stuff. doesn't matter. But these five W's, we're going to work through those right now and use them as a way of kind of drilling down how this applies to us so that we know going into this week, what is God calling us to do? So who? Who is this message for? Sometimes we hear a message like this, and it's easy to think, well, it's for my pastor, or it's for some missionary, but I want you to hear this clearly. This is not for somebody else. This is for you. This is for me. This is for every single one of us who claims to be a follower of Jesus. So who? You, us, me. And what? Well, break the ice. Right? Share the gospel by breaking the ice. Identify what's underneath, what's really at the core. Connect the dots from there to Jesus and, and expect varying kinds of responses. It's true. Some will say no, but others will and have said yes. And unless we're willing to speak up, I'm telling you the answer is always going to be no. So let's speak up. So that's the who and the what, but let's tackle the next two together. First, verse 26 speaks to the where and the when. Verse 26, Paul says, From one man God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times, that's the when, and the boundaries of their lands, that's where. See, God put you, God put me exactly where we are and exactly when we are in history. He marks out our boundaries. He appoints our times of existence in history. You are where you are. You are when you are on purpose for a purpose. I want you to see how specific this is. Jump back to verse 16 again. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. While Paul was waiting. It turns out Paul's on layover in Athens. He's in between mission trips. And he's waiting around for his ministry partners to finally get there. And yet, even in the waiting, all of this goes down. Isn't that something? You ever have to wait for something? It can suck the joy out of existence. (laughs) 
But if our God is a God who marks out boundaries and appointed times, then even the waiting is on purpose for a purpose. That means when you're renewing your license plates at the DMV and you're wondering why you have to wait in line with a room full of people for three hours, you have actually been strategically placed there by a God who knows you are there on purpose for a purpose. That also means when we find ourselves in situations, perhaps ones that are really, really painful and heartbreaking, God is able to work in powerful ways, even in that waiting. With their permission, I I want to share a story with you. It's a story that's still being written. But many of you here know Whitney. Uh, She sings and leads us in worship uh, most every Sunday. But on September 9th, she posted this on Facebook. I'm just going to read some parts of it. She wrote, today I had a surgery to help me pass a sweet baby whose heart stopped beating in my belly. A baby I wanted very much. A baby I know in my soul is firmly secured in the arms of Jesus. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you because God never left me. And I want you to know he won't leave you either. She continues to write, I don't love God because he and I have an agreement that if I love him, he'll make my life good and easy. I love God because he gave himself for me on a cross and he daily holds me close. And she closed with this. If you've never met him, today can be the day. There is no one like him. And with over 200 likes and nearly 100 comments, I'd say Whitney's testimony, while in the waiting, struck a chord for many people. But do you see that, that like one share right there? That's me. I knew that her testimony would resonate with somebody. I didn't know who, but I knew it would resonate with others. And so I shared it on my wall. And I got maybe like 10 likes on it because Whitney's like way cooler than I am. But one person in particular saw it. And I didn't find out until a few days ago when I received a text from this person that I haven't talked to in nearly a decade. Here's what she wrote. You posted something a few weeks ago that hit close to home and had been helpful to me. My husband and I have been going through difficult times with an early pregnancy loss. I was angry with God at the time because throughout these last few months, it seemed all my prayers meant nothing and I was being ignored. But you shared a post about a woman going through the same thing and it definitely helped me. And so thank you for that, for reaching out. God is working in mysterious ways, I see. And the person who shared and sent that to me is none other than the girl I shared with you before from my New Jersey youth group that God saved all those years ago. It turns out God is not done writing this story. Because listen, if God could use a random Facebook post that I randomly shared from a random friend at my random church in my random city to reach a random friend in New Jersey, well, then maybe what seems so random and wasted to us in the hands of a God who marks out boundaries and appointed times is really on purpose for a purpose that is far greater 
than anything we could imagine. God is doing extraordinary things in our world. And he invites us to join him. Who? You. What? Break the ice. Where? Right where you are. Whether it's the DMV or infertility or somewhere else entirely. And when? Well, now. Even in the waiting. And finally, why? Verse 27, and then we'll close. God did this, meaning God placed us right where we are and right when we are. So that, here's why, they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. Here's the why. So the world might know Jesus. This is why we do it. So the world would know Jesus. That is why he placed you right where you are, right when you are, so that those around us might know the Jesus that we have come to know. And so as we close out our service today, I just want to pray a prayer over each one of us here. And as I pray, I'm going to invite you to to either stand or to kneel or to hold your hands, you know, kind of like this in a posture of receiving or, or maybe to hold your hands up high toward the Lord in a posture of, of reaching. But however the response, may it be a declaration, a physical declaration now of our readiness to go where God sends us. Amen? So right now, however you want to stand or sit or, or kneel, hands outreached, I just invite you to place yourself in a physical readiness for the Lord to send us. Lord, I am reminded of a gathering similar to this one in Acts 13, where a group of Jesus followers gathered for a time of worship and prayer. And then breaking into that gathering, your Holy Spirit called out Paul and one other to a work. And I believe you are doing the same thing right now. So on behalf of all who are gathered here in this place, ready to join you, we come asking for your grace and favor to do more than all we can ask or even imagine. Send us out in your power, fully equipped for the task ahead. Give us eyes that see the idols around us and a heart that aches with unspeakable sorrow for those around us who've yet to know you. May we be empowered with boldness, infused with courage, and strengthened to stand against the schemes of an enemy who wants nothing more to thwart what you have started because eternity is on the line. And Lord, for any here who've never made the decision to follow you, may today be that day. Would they pray even now in their hearts to you, Jesus I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. And may these first words simply be the beginning of a long, beautiful, rich conversation and journey with you for the remaining days of their lives. This we ask in the name of our King, in the name of our Lord, 
In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we pray all things and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week.